I would like to say, just in a sort of general way, that I can't imagine anything more ironical than that I would be on television, and you notice that I'm not this morning. I don't even have anything to watch it on. And I don't suppose Brother Ted Ferrer is going to be any happier about it than I am. And the only consolation I suppose I have is that if you're watching that, you're not watching some of the other things that otherwise you might be. And, and I do want to say, in connection with television, that I certainly hope, if you have to have one of those things in your home, that you are very selective in what you watch on it. I, I th we laugh about it a lot, we joke about it a lot, and I kid Ted about it and, and so forth. But I respect uh, where he's coming from. There is a lot of material on television that is absolutely beneath any Christadelphian to watch. The language and the, uh, the dress and undress and so on and so forth and the plots and, and all of the, the just uh, it, it bothers me even to think that we would spend our time supporting the popularity of the kind of people who are the biggest stars on television. And there's the subtle aspect, and I wonder sometimes if people really understand what Brother Ted Ferrer is saying when he has uh, valiantly carried on against it over the years, as he has against the teaching of evolution. I wonder sometimes if people really think through what it is that he's trying to say. Because he's talking about the subtle influence. In the case of evolution, the subtle influence is there, even though no one actually teaches it as a as a, a fact it may never come up in that sense but have you noticed Christadelphians who talk about monkeys and, and so on and so forth I mean we allow the expressions of Egypt around us to creep into our conversation there's a subtle influence we ought to avoid we must believe that God created Adam and Eve and started the human race from that premise and that Adam sinned and that's why we have problems if you don't Start from that premise. It's not something you can play loosely with. If you don't start from that premise, then you will never understand how to deal with the problem of redemption through Christ. And it's more than the shedding of Christ's blood we're trying to talk about this week. We're talking about the redemption that's necessary, the purging, the cleansing, the changing of our ways, the coming to God from the posture of men of sin. In the case of television when you realize that even people of the world are very much concerned about the uh, mental, almost a state of imbecility which is besetting our nation today. We cannot find people who can read and write because they have everything done for them on television. When I was a kid, we couldn't afford a radio, much less a television. But I often think that I happen to have come from a large family and we entertained each other we could create some things that were of interest to talk about. We knew how to read and write. We knew how to talk about in, in words of more than two syllables and things of this sort. And so we had a, a certain ingredient in our lives that you're going to miss if you're not careful. If you let your children concentrate all it, sure, it's a great babysitter. It's a great babysitter. It keeps them out of your hair while you do something else and so forth. But that's about all it does because it certainly isn't doing anything for their minds. 
And you ought to be thinking of it in that sense, if not just in the sense of the things, the programs that some of us watch after they've gone to bed. If there's something on television that can't be shown to the children, you have to wonder whether you should be watching it at all. Now, in general, let me say regarding the openness with which I have spoken to you this week, that it is done with one objective and one objective alone. And that is that God may be glorified by having some people in his kingdom. There isn't any other purpose to which we ought to be going to Bible schools. In Philippians chapter 2, we read, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That, brethren, is what I have tried to do this week. I am very concerned about the condition into which the brotherhood has fallen through its inattention to the word. And when I say be careful of what you read, I'm saying this is the source of all information you can ever need to get to the kingdom. Make sure that when you read books, even those written by the brethren, that you read them with a firm foundation in the scriptures first. And then it doesn't make any... I've read the Koran. I've read the Book of Mormon. I deliberately read both, knowing full well that I was reading the works of men that were not who were not inspired by God. And I wanted to understand where these people came from. But at least I knew I was reading error when I read it. That was what I was trying to say. Read what you read. Watch what you watch. Talk and listen to people very selectively. All I have really been trying to do this week is to be provocative in the finest sense of the word, to be stimulative to you, to cause you to think, to cause you to search, to cause you to ask, to cause you to seek. And if that is your understanding of what has been done, then we will both have been benefited. The consequences of man's disobedience were the entrance of death into the world. It's very important that we recognize that we were not created in a dying condition. We were created in what is called in Scripture a very good condition and only two people have ever known it. Now, because of sin, because of choosing another than God's way, death entered into the world. They were expelled from the garden and thus separated from the favor and communication which they had enjoyed with God. 
being cast out of Eden, they could not return without the permission of God who alone could grant it. The thought of sin, having conceived in Adam's mind, and worked a little bit and brought forth fruit. It became a part of his nature so that now every child born into the world, and there are all sorts of tests to sustain this point, by the way. The best textbook on psychology that has ever been written is the scripture. Remember when Jesus said he needed not that any should teach him what was in man? The best textbook in the world, and if you really want to understand yourself or any problem around you that you have a little trouble trying to figure out, go to the scripture and you'll find an example and you'll find an explanation of it. But you have to listen. Our problem is that we go to the scripture to find confirmation of what we already thought anyway. We decide the way we want the issue to turn out. And then very often we go to the scripture and we look frantically for verses that will prove it. One thing we must do is we must not have an opinion of our own. God is not interested in your opinion or mine. Not the slightest bit interested in our opinion. What God wants is stop talking and listen. Study to be quiet. God is in heaven and thou upon earth, therefore let thy words be few, we're told. Stop talking and listen. Let him tell us what he wants us to do. Don't play the politics of the case. Don't decide that if there are more people who, appear, who approve of this approach than that approach, they must therefore be right. If that were so, we'd all be Muslims or Catholics. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And we've known since childhood what the broad road meant. It leads to destruction. And many there be who go in thereat, or which go in thereat. That element of sin, which we said by metonymy is the thing which caused the result, is called by the same name. It became a part of his, Adam's nature. It was passed on to all of his race. And so we are all spoken of as being born in sin and shapen in iniquity. We must recognize that the potter has power over the clay. And while it is true that we had no actual part, and let's be sure we get this straight, while it is true that we had no actual part in that one offense of Adam, yet every child born as an extension of Adam is a standing monument before God to remind him of the great transgression against his law. For each one born under this constitution of sin with all the evils, the pain, the sorrow, the sickness, the sadness, the tragedy that flesh is heir to, grows up into the world to manifest the carnal mind which is enmity against God. So in Ephesians 2, we see the force of Paul's words in verses 12 and 13, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. As Gentiles, you were in that position. Born into Adam, you were in that position. Strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. 
But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes, who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Now there's a point I want to make also in connection with um, living the truth, which Brother Dick Purcell doesn't like to hear me say because it sounds like when we use the term the truth, like we know it all. We've discovered it all. Well, believe me, we know less today than we knew 50 years ago. We don't know it all. And when we talk about the truth, we are saying that that which we do believe is God's word. That's the way he said it. And if it means anything else to you than that, then you have a problem. But when we talk about living in accord with God's plan, which we call the truth, one thing that has been greatly misunderstood, it seems to me, because I hear people constantly talking about whether we can live it or not, the fact is none of us can. None of us should ever be baptized if we thought that at the point of baptism that that meant that we were so worthy that God couldn't avoid giving us a place in the kingdom. That's not true. Even when you come up out of the waters of baptism completely clear of sin, you are still unworthy. There is no way. If you thought you could earn eternal life, you should have been a Jew. And look what happened to them. Jesus says, you think you have eternal life out of those scriptures. Those are the very scriptures which testify of me. Now, the significance of that was not just go back and read that as a history book and it'll tell you who I am. He is saying, you didn't understand in the things that you thought were bringing you life eternal that those were simply trying to point you to the fact that I had to come as the Son of God whose grace, unmerited favor, grace, would come upon all because none of us can earn eternal life. Every one of us has to have a generous portion of the mercy of God every day of his life. The mere fact that we know when we go to sleep at night. You know, Brother Bob gets up here every day and says, did you sleep well last night? I think he says, did you, did you sleep good last night? But, <laughs> and you, your answer is yes, because of the fine New Mexico air and so on and so forth. And the fact that they wore you out yesterday and you were too <laughs> so tired, you know. But, but, you know, you wouldn't if you looked on the sunshine the way you look on life and the truth. If we had as little confidence in God in our lives and his ability to do these things in us as we, if we had as little ability in his ability to raise the sun as we have in his ability to guide our lives, we'd never sleep. You'd be scared to death to go to sleep because you'd be afraid you wouldn't wake up. Think about that. We accept, like falling off a log, all sorts of principles in our lives, but when it comes to controlling our behavior, we don't think the Lord can handle that. I closed the other night with a sentence from the Scripture, which said, I can do all things. My daughter tells me I said it so quietly you didn't hear it anyway. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Now, do you really believe that? 
Do you really believe that God can take charge in your life through the principles you learn from the Scripture? Do you think that it is possible for you to commit a sin that he can't forgive? There's only one we're told of, and we don't have it, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit, so we can't commit that one, blasphemy against the Spirit. Have you ever read that list of things? This was a tough one for me to get through my head. Have you ever read that list of sins? You were this, and you were this, and you were this, and you were this, and you were this. Such were some of you. But now are ye washed. Do you really understand what redemption through Christ means? Do you really understand what grace means? Do we really understand what the whole focal point of all of God's creation and everything he has ever done meant? Do you really know what Christ did when he gave his blood as the only acceptable blood in the whole world in all of history? you really understand what God is trying to do? Then why do we fret so about our problems? Why don't we just submit ourselves unto the hand of God? which is what he's trying to get us to do in the first place. But we sit around and rate ourselves on a sheet. I remember when I was a kid growing up that Jim's dad used to scare the daylights out of me talking about the balance sheet that the judge would use. And he'd look over here and he'd figure out how many good things we had. And he'd look over here and figure out how many evil things we had. And I was a small kid and I already had too many on the wrong side. <laughs> But that's not the way it's going to be done at all. And I don't even think that's what he thought. It's not a case of, you know, in, in Matthew 25, isn't it, where they stand there and they try to wrestle with, with whether they gave a cup of cold water to the Lord or was it one of the least of the brethren they gave it to or one of the greatest of the brethren? Well, now let me see. You see, that's what the Jew did. He had a misunderstanding. He had it all figured out mechanically. So many pounds on this side and so many pounds on that side. It's not that way at all. What the Lord is trying to do is to empty you of those things which stand in the way of your glorifying Him. And that's all He's trying to do. So don't spend the time figuring out how many pounds you have to get rid of. Get rid of the whole thing. Cast your care upon Him for He careth for you. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the only reason it's tough is because we want to hang on to a little of it. If we would decide that none of it would get us to the kingdom, then it wouldn't make any difference. Whatever we're given along the way is just so much to the good. And he gives us a lot of blessings. In fact, one of our problems is our prosperity. Our material prosperity, because it preoccupies our minds. The first sheet in the newspaper that you have to look at is the financial page to see whether you're any better off than you were yesterday. And in these times, you might as well not waste your time. Well, those are the evils that flesh is heir to. That's the result of the carnal mind. Even though the Ephesians had found the way back, Paul emphasized their former natural condition so they couldn't forget where they'd been. They were formerly dead in trespasses and sins. 
The natural man is activated by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In 1 John 2, Verse 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and it quotes those three things, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. James, in chapter 1, verses 13 through 15 points out how these lusts are at the root of the act of sin. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. And this is a process that the Christadelphians understand far, far better than most of the people around us. And the reason some Christadelphians don't like the use of the word Christian to describe us, by the way, is because that describes people who do not understand, though they call themselves Christians. They are not Christ's. They are not Abraham's seed. They are not heirs according to the promises. Unfortunately, you know, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. A lot of other people have been called it since. And so some people would prefer not to use the word at all. But most, quote, Christians, unquote, Nominal Christians don't have the vaguest notion what this really means. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. That's because that principle has entered our being. It's a physical, a mental, and a moral principle in our being because we're born in Adam. Even a little baby is going to have fury. You know, you do something he doesn't want and he raises the roof. Little kids that high are the kings of great big houses. They run things the way because you permit them to. When I said that about the lady who said thank you for, cooper for your cooperation, I didn't mean that we're not supposed to thank our children. Of course we bring up our children to say please and thank you and so on and so forth, and to feel generous and to feel appreciation and so on. What I was talking about is I can't conceive of discussing with a four-year-old how you're going to handle a problem. And I don't think the four-year-old even understood the word cooperation. That's what I meant. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And notice this process. You will never find it done any other way. Then... When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And we are told to stay away from the edge. Don't get as close as you can to see if you can peek over without being touched. You know, some people almost act like they, you know, you know the old saying, I can take it or leave it? Nobody can take it or leave it. Take it and then try to leave it. My father used to say, if you don't take the first drink, then you'll never become an alcoholic. And he was right. I still am not. And I've had a lot of causes that would have driven some other people, probably because they had the weakness, to a constant state of stupor. 
But you know, somehow you've got to understand that the lust has to be there, which works to the next step, but is sin, and then it works to the last one, which is death. Now, I've got enough of a problem to wrestle with the fact that I'm physically mortal without adding to the burden by my own sins. Paul covers these, and I'll have to do like Gary did and give you some verses that you can read at another time. In Romans 8, 5 to 8, Romans 7, 20 to 24, Romans 7, 14, and Romans 3, 9 brings out the very same idea. And every last one of us, if he's honest with himself, knows how that process works all too well. What man needs is in Romans 8, 1 and 2 to be freed from sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And that last phrase is not in some of the translations, but it's in other verses, so I don't see why, what harm it can do here. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. And some people wrestle with that verse and they say, well, yes, it's true. You don't have any condemnation if you're in Christ if you're living after the Spirit. You don't have any condemnation if you're in Christ, no matter how you live from Adam the condemnation from Adam is removed from us we still have the physical curse of death and we will go through it unless Christ comes to change it because we're heir to it we inherited it but sin that comes from the moment of baptism brings its own renewed condemnation and so we talk of it as the second death that comes upon us because we don't keep our garments unspotted Thus, the need for the mercy of God. You see, God had to do more than just allow Christ to die for us so that we could come out of Adam and into Christ and into covenant relationship with the Father. He had to do more than just remove that alienation from us or that estrangement from us. He had to give us a way of continually purging ourselves, changing our wills, if you please, changing our wills to take on the mind of Christ which did not seek to be equal with God, but rather was humble and said, Father, what would you have me do? Man's attempt to cover his own nakedness by fig leaves was a failure. The covering had to come from God. There was no religion in the world up until the time of the, sac the uh, transgression because there was no need for one. Man was not estranged from God. He did not therefore need to be rebound to God. But the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world was Jesus Christ, whose shedding of blood was typified in the animals who were slain to provide coats of skins to cover Adam and Eve. All of the offerings under the Mosaic law pointed also to the shedding of Christ's blood. As Brother Gary has so beautifully brought out here this week in so many of these uh, illustrative details every aspect of the law was to help the Jews see Christ in his sacrifice as he brought out about the, the brazen serpent from John 3 as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so shall the son of man be lifted up and if I be lifted up he says I will draw all men unto me if you don't understand what Jesus was trying to do 
please remember that it was more than his death on the cross because that death wouldn't have been effective at all had there not been a total obedience to God's will in every respect prior to that time. He came from nowhere to the supremacy which will be his as king over the redeemed of the Lord and of his kingdom there shall be no end. We therefore have considered the need for reconciliation between God and man because of the separation brought about by man's disobedience. God is the one sinned against. Therefore, only he could lay down the terms of that reconciliation. After eating of the tree, Adam and Eve knew that they were naked. They were now conscious of having sinned. When they tried to cover their nakedness with animal, with uh, vegetable covering, it was opaque. You could no longer see their nakedness, but they were still conscious of sin. That's what mortality brings with it, consciousness of sin. And Paul writes whole chapters on this subject. There isn't time to go into them. But covering themselves with fig leaves did not remove the guilt of their sin. Adam and Eve were guilty of the sin. We are not guilty of Adam's sin. We are accused of saying that sometimes, but we do not believe it. We are not guilty of Adam's sin. We suffer the consequences of it, and we must acknowledge it. We must acknowledge it, or our baptism is of no value. We must acknowledge that we are born in sin, consigned to death, and God would have been perfectly within his rights. If justice had prevailed, Adam would have been struck dead on the spot and that would be the end of it. But you know something else we must never lose sight of. There is an element in the character of God which we know as mercy. One of the sterling qualities, if we can speak of the Father in these terms, one of the sterling qualities of the Father is that he is merciful, that he is love. How in the world could he show it had he insisted on his rights and struck him dead? The only way that God could therefore show his mercy and thus have us learn mercy in order to reflect his glory was through the covering of the sin. The willingness to allow man to come back if he would learn of him and obey. Paul picks up that point and says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. He also tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. Therefore, it required the shedding of the blood of the only begotten of the Father, who could at no time transgress that law. There isn't time to go into it, but Brother Andrew wrote a pamphlet which Brother Roberts then took and, and uh, embellished, I guess you'd say, or expanded, that has a, an absolutely beautiful, it's the slain lamb it's called, has an absolutely beautiful definition of, of how the work of redemption came about. And I'll try to, to make this as brief as I can. The statement, the, the point is made that Christ had to come under the law 
of sin and death through Adam in order to redeem the human race, members of the human race who would come to him. He also, since the Mosaic Law was a schoolmaster to bring us unto Messiah, had to fall a victim or fall under its curse in order to take away all of its requirements and make them no longer unfulfilled. Not one jot or one tittle could pass from the law till all be fulfilled, remember. Therefore, there was a special provision placed in the law. You remember what it was? Cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. Now, God could have said lots of other things, but think about that. It was the shedding of blood which was going to require, going to be required in order to take away the sin of the world. That's why Adam and Eve had coats of skins provided them. That's why all the offerings under the Mosaic Law required the shedding of blood. That's why baptism re uh, represents a cutting off from life. When you're under the water, if they left you there, you'd be dead. You would be cut off from the source of life, wouldn't you? Therefore, we are buried with him in baptism, death, burial, and resurrection. All of these things have to point in the right way. Thus he said to John, thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And I happen to believe that the baptism of Christ did more than just manifest him to Israel. I think something was accomplished for Christ in that act. And I think therein lies the difference between the unamended understanding of the truth and the amended. We believe that baptism does indeed bring us into covenant relationship with God and take away our sins. John's baptism was for the remission of sins, and that was not enough. Now, what happens? Christ had to fall victim because he had to be bitten in the heel by the power of death in order that he might then, as he rose from the dead, have the strength to put his foot upon it and crush the head, annihilate the power of death, which he will do at the end of the thousand years. The last enemy which shall be destroyed is death. But in doing it, he had to come under the, the curse of the Mosaic law in a way that did not violate the other one. There were many things he could have done to bring him under the curse of the Mosaic law. But the only one which could bring him under the curse without finding him personally guilty of an act of offense against God was the manner of his death. Now remember, God knew exactly what the course of history would be. And so when he decreed that crucifixion, rather than stoning under the Mosaic law, would be the means of Christ's death, he knew that the Romans would be in authority at the time Christ came and that they would practice crucifixion. Christ was not the only one ever crucified before or since. He was the only righteous man who ever hanged on a tree. And thus, the blood was shed through no fault of his own. He acceded to the will of God in the matter. Look at Acts 2, verse 22. Ye men of Israel, Peter says, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, this is the man who denied Christ, who, having been convinced by his resurrection that this is truly the Lord of glory, and never again will any man make me afraid, stands up and says to them, A man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. That's what Messiah was supposed to do. Which God did by him. Right under your nose. In the midst of you, he says. As ye yourselves also know, if you were honest enough to admit what God has done. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God planned it every inch of the way, and Jesus never balked at the requirement. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. It wasn't because of Christ's righteousness. It was because God had carefully planned the things he would do, which included the shedding of blood. It was obedience even unto death. Had he done everything else that was required and stalled at the last minute, we would of all men be hopeless, most miserable, because Christ could not have been raised from the dead. He was brought forth from the grave by the blood of the everlasting covenant. And so are we if we are in covenant relationship. And so we will appear at a judgment to answer for the deeds done in the body. Most men are reluctant to accept God's terms. But Jesus says, he that climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. And he says, ye must be born again. We might have rivers in our own country in which we'd like to be baptized. But if we're told to be baptized in this dirty old river, we'd better be baptized in it. If God tells us to do it this way, let's not spend any time trying to figure out some other way to do it. Because there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. There's only one way. Paul says that disobedience brought sin and death and the obedience of the only begotten Son of God. Carefully prepared. A body hast thou prepared me. He was asked if he had come to be king of the Jews and he said, to this end was I born, for this purpose came I into the world. There was never any doubt about anything he ever did. Can you imagine knowing from the time you were 12 years old what your father's business required you to do? How many times do you suppose we really fail to do the right thing because we don't really know what the right thing is? Unfortunately, lots of times we know that we are either too weak or we don't think about it or maybe we think it really doesn't matter. But it does. Christ always did those things which pleased the Father. He knew full well that the abs... Imagine the weight... The salvation of the race rested upon his shoulders. One false move would have frustrated the purpose of God. But God knew and Christ knew and he believed when he allowed himself to go into that grave that the Father who required it would be there to raise him. If we could have that faith when we go to bed at night, the Father who required it would be there to raise him in the morning. 
and he raised him right on schedule. Not a minute before and not a minute later. When people say, if the Lord delay his coming, don't ever use that expression again. The Lord has nothing to say about the matter. He will come precisely on schedule. God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. He raised him from the dead right on schedule. He will send him again to redeem the rest of the cursed creation of man. Right on schedule. Thank you. I appreciate the extra time because we do have uh, still quite a bit of material to cover and I shall do my utmost, God willing, to uh, wind it up in, a, in an orderly fashion this morning. I'd like to read first Romans 5, verses 6 through 11, which sort of sums it up. For when ye were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now, the word atonement, as we have mentioned earlier, was used once in the New Testament. There are several Hebrew expressions which cover the same point. It's commonly used by us in relation to Christ's death on the cross. It signifies, in the word at one meant, it signifies the bringing together of individuals in harmony who had been previously at enmity or estranged to make one again. When we use this word, we usually restrict its application to the great work of redemption which centers in Jesus Christ. Let's look, because there are some other words that, that signify the same thing. All of these words, uh, such as redemption, propitiation, justification, are used to indicate a change of status. That's the thing I want to be sure we understand. A change of status from a position of separation or estrangement from God to a position of favor in the sight of God. Look at Ephesians 2, and we will go through the scriptures very quickly here, and you can cover these, uh, some of these subjects and will from time to time uh, in your adult Sunday schools at home. Um, I hope you don't think that you're uh, too old to be going to Sunday school. You know, there are Christadelphians who, uh, who have over the years uh, felt that Sunday school was for kids or something of the sort, uh, and generally speaking, if you talk to them long enough, you realize that they haven't been going. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13 Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the, in the flesh made by hands, that at that time, and this is the most direct verse probably in the whole scripture, 
that at that time ye were without a Messiah. Without a Savior. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. Remember Christ said salvation is of the Jew. And if you have been born outside covenant relationship with, with God, what are you going to be? You're going to be separated from God. Having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, it says, are made nigh, brought back to the family again, brought back to a position where you can work your way back to the uh, tree of life through the grace of God. Now look at 1 Corinthians 1.30. Incidentally, I might also say that as there have been Christadelphians who didn't uh, think that Sunday schools were appropriate for adults, there have, you have no idea the problem that, that uh, uh, was experienced by some people in trying to start Bible schools and get people to go to Bible school. What? I'm going to take my vacation and go and study all week. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Ephesians 1, 7. In whom, and it's speaking of Jesus Christ in verse 5, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. In all of these, we must be careful not to read in an idea of substitution or the giving of one life for another, but rather a means, and this is really the crux of the whole thing, a means by which God's justice might be maintained while at the same time his mercy and forgiveness can be extended to fallen man. It says, and I looked for the verse and I didn't have Gary's concordance. Some of you will know it by heart, I'm sure, that he might be just and the justifier. You notice those two words. Do you know where that is, Jim? Where? Because it's a very good verse. Romans what? Three twenty-six. Thank you. To declare, uh, that's exactly the passage I want. Okay. Verse twenty-three: For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation or a mercy seat through faith in his blood, to declare, and this is what we do in our baptism. This is what Christ did on the cross, and this is what we do in our baptism. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. There's that element in his nature. There is that element in the character of God, of mercy and forgiveness, which had to be reflected in someone who needed it. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness. God had to be right in doing what he did 
in accordance with his own principles, you see, that he might be just in exacting a penalty and the justifier, the making right of that which was not right, the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. The deeds can only show your intention. James says, show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. So Jews and Gentiles both require faith. A Jew who did not see Christ in his sacrifice was not justified. Do we then make the law through make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. The offerings under the law were not for the effect they would have upon God, but rather for the effect they would have upon the person who made the sacrifice. As a form or symbol, the sacrifice showed the sinner that he merited death and needed forgiveness. They pointed toward a truly effective sacrifice which God would provide in the seed of the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent. Let's reread Galatians 3.24. So he drove out the man and he placed, well, I'd better read the verse over in uh, verse 15 first. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Oh, did I? I'm sorry. That's why I couldn't find it in Genesis. But we have to have that because we're talking about bruising the serpent's head, isn't it? Thank you, Well. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, verse 24, I'm going to use it since we're here. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now something had to happen between that point and the point at which the son of man should be able to bruise the head and thus put to death death itself. Sin and death, I might say. Now, let's look at um, uh, Galatians 3.24. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. <clears throat> the offerings and various ordinances of the law of Moses were only a temporary arrangement by which man could receive forgiveness. For they pointed forward to the fullness of time when the perfect sacrifice should be manifested. Romans three nineteen through 21. Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. Talking about the Mosaic law. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. 
Therefore, I'm getting a ringing here. Am I supposed to? Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God, the margin says from God, without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. And remember, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But that righteousness is really from God. We are covered over by the righteousness, and that's what the word uh, atonement really means in, in many of the Hebrew uh, uses in the Old Testament. A covering. God, when he looks at us, does not see us at all. He sees the righteousness of Christ into whose name we have come and in whose name we come to God. Galatians 2, verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Hebrews 9. Verse 6. through 12, and particularly with emphasis on the 12th verse. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Spirit, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all, the most holy place, was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect. He had to keep going back each year, pointing forward to the time when the perfect high priest would come. As pertaining to the conscience, it did not make the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. But Christ, or Messiah, being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. He entered in once, into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. And the for us is in italics, which was not in the original. It's a rare form of, of Greek, which means doing something to yourself, having obtained eternal redemption. Having obtained eternal redemption for himself, he could then, of course, obtain it for us. It was accomplished in the same act. In Hebrews 9, 15... And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament or law or covenant 
they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Not just blessing and basket and store and long life in the land, but eternal inheritance. Acts 13. Verse 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things. From which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. An angel, an animal, or an un-Adamic man, had such existed, could not die for the race, because the dying was not to be a punishment of the innocent in place of the guilty, but the establishing of the divine supremacy in righteousness as the basis of favor in forgiveness in the case of all who see, believe, and submit. All of God's requirements met in Jesus Christ. In Romans 5, again, nineteen. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace, unmerited favor, something we can't earn, reign through righteousness. It had to be preserved. God had to remain the supreme. He was the forgiver. We are the forgiven. Unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus was son of man, seed of the woman, by virtue of his birth of the Virgin Mary. He thus inherited directly the flesh with its sinful tendencies and thereby was able to be an effective sacrifice in contrast to animal sacrifices which had no direct connection with the flesh and blood nature which had been condemned. In Hebrews 2, Verse 14, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, there are six times now when, when he is related to that, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Notice that six times it's emphasized in that one verse. He also himself likewise took part of the same. Millions of people read these verses, don't have the vaguest idea who it is they're talking about. He also himself likewise took part of the same for a purpose that through death, through the biting in the heel, he might put his foot on the head, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to...
to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. This is very important when we need help. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Don't underestimate this next verse. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Jesus Christ understood every problem we could have. He had the same feelings in his flesh because he had the same flesh. The scripture tells us that there's only one flesh of man. Only one. His was no different. He understood pain. He understood grief. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Many, many times he understood the end and that enabled him to plow through whatever difficulties there might be around him. But he understands and all of the things that we're talking about about Christ were done specifically to prepare him for that work. He could not be unlike us. He was made in all points like as we are. He was tempted in all points like unto his brethren, yet without sin. So he understands what we're struggling against. And we also should remember that there is no temptation that hath overtaken you, I believe is the way it's worded, that is not common to man. And God will not tempt us above that we are able to bear, but will, with the temptation, give us therewith a means of escape. Now, we sometimes don't take it. We still would prefer to take another route, to try to do it our way. But don't be surprised if the end there are the ways of death. And if that's what you want, then just lie down and die, because that's all you have coming anyway. Except for the grace of God. Except that we declare the righteousness of God. Except that we are connected with that shedding of the blood of the only one who ever successfully overcame all the elements of the flesh. He learned obedience through the things he suffered. John 4, verse 31. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me. God never claimed, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus never claimed to be equal with God. Jesus said, My father is greater than I. I go to my father because he is greater than I. I do at all times those things that please the father. He is saying, I don't have a choice in the matter. I am going to do what I was sent to do. To do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. What had he told Adam to do? To have dominion over all the earth. John 5, verse 30. I can of mine own self do nothing. Now that was emptying himself, wasn't it? Taking no credit. He didn't exalt himself. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Now, let me say one thing. You know, we have a 
an awful lot of things we get hang-ups about in the truth. A lot of people wrestle with whether or not at the judgment seat of Christ anybody will be there who is not in, house, in, in covenant relationship with him. I do not expect anyone to be there. I do not think the scripture teaches otherwise. But don't get hung up over the fact that it would be inappropriate, as Brother Robert says, for some people outside the truth to be at the judgment seat of Christ. Because God has committed all judgment unto his son, so any judgment that is poured out upon the nations, alien though they be, will be done by the Son of God. It won't be done any other way. It will be done by the Son himself. But obviously, not as part of the household, then of course it's inappropriate that they stand with the household because the purpose of that judgment, we're told, is that we, in covenant relationship, give an account of the probationary period of that relationship. And also, when we wrestle with whether or not God can bring people out of the grave in order to get them to the judgment, we don't have to worry about that one either because Christ will be here soon enough that a lot of the people we worry about will still be out of the grave and clearly will feel the judgments of God poured out through Christ and the angels upon those people who will not submit to Christ. So one way or another, you've got to remember that vengeance is mine. I will repay, says God. We can't trifle with the things of the Lord and escape. Matthew 26. Verse 39. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Hebrews 10. Verse 5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law, or in accordance with the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. In John 1.29, clearly establishes his relationship to the redemptive work of God. The next day John the Baptist saith Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God. He's in, a, in Revelation talked, uh, spoken of as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The coats of skin, if you will, with which Adam and Eve were clothed. Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Not just rolls it forward to a year at a time, or for a year at a time until finally... Someone comes to remove it. 
because he has satisfied the requirements of God's righteousness. Jesus satisfied those requirements. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, while Jesus was free of having transgressed, he was related to the law of sin and death by reason of his birth of Adam's race. Now, we have re-emphasized some of these points many, many times because they are so distorted and misunderstood at times. Verse 21, for God, he made, hath made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin. Christ was the perfect sin offering. He was made to be sin. He was born in a body of sin in order that he could be that offering. Who knew no personal transgression, we might say, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We are clothed upon with his righteousness. Galatians 4.4 4. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. You know, we think of ourselves as Gentiles, as being adopted Jews. Think of it. The Jews had to become adopted sons. Don't ever forget that. We sometimes as Christadelphians tend to sort of uh, glorify the Jewish race. We almost uh, reach a point where we take a nationalistic attitude in the things that the Jews do. And Christadelphians seem to think as long as the Jews do it, it's okay. As long as Israel does this, it's all right. God disapproves of a lot of things Israel does. He is watching very carefully what they're doing. And he is guiding very carefully to see that their enemies do not ultimately triumph. But we certainly cannot take... I had a, a brother say to me one time that at the time of the Six-Day War, if it had lasted any more, any longer, he would have gone over and enlisted. God took that young brother in a freak accident and he never got the chance to violate the law of God as he had planned. We must remember that I will bless him that blesseth thee, I will curse him that curseth thee. But that doesn't mean that blindly we assume that because the Jews did it, it's morally right. The fact of the matter is we stand back disinterested from any of the affairs of the nations of men. We're watching what's going on in Israel, not because we're cheering the winner on, because he'll get there without our cheers. Because if God wants him to lose that battle, he'll lose it even with our cheers, won't he? The whole point is we are not of this world. We have here no continuing city. We seek a city whose builder and maker is God. We can't get interested in the national aspects of, of the life of men. We are, if you would remember, that Christ was establishing anyway an international following he certainly wouldn't want one person on one side shooting at one of his people over on the other side shooting in the other direction, would he? Even if they're Jews. The only time when we will change that posture will be when Jesus Christ walks in that door and says, come, follow me. And then we won't have a chance to ask any questions 
If we're on the right hand and we're immortalized, you won't want to ask any questions. And we must remember that we, that we cannot deify mortal, sinful Jews just because they're Jews. We stand and watch what happens to them because they are God's witnesses. They are the clock and we can watch the hands on the clock by what's happening to Israel. The reestablishment of the Jew in Palestine clearly showed us that God was moving ahead with his plan. But it didn't make any difference whether we thought he should or he shouldn't. So we must avoid the involvement in that kind of thing. Romans 8.3 For, the, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, it was the flesh that was weak, it wasn't the law that was weak, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, but flesh made strong by an understanding of God's plan and purpose, and for sin, or by a sacrifice for sin, the margin says, condemned sin right where it lived in the flesh that's what he did he condemned sin right in the flesh 1st Peter 2 24 who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. The sacrificial death of Christ, in this particular way, by the shedding of his blood, was for the purpose of restoring that which he did not take away. Had he done so, as we said yesterday, when we're talking about the slain lamb, which came from Brother Andrew's uh, Jesus Christ and him crucified, by the way. That was the original work on the subject. When we talked about that, we said that Jesus could not violate the law of sin and death, or he would therefore, in, in carrying out his uh, uh, sentence of, rem uh, his uh, opportunity of removing the Mosaic law. If he, had if he had done it in a way that involved personal guilt on his part, then he would have been an unacceptable sacrifice. He would have been no better than any of the animals that had been slain in the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. Psalm 69, verse 4. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. I was thinking about it this morning, you know, whenever someone catches us doing something we shouldn't be doing or catches us in a, in a wrong reasoning on a point or something, uh, we fuss and we complain and we defend and we do all sorts of things. Remarkable when you think about it that the only really innocent man who ever lived was like a lamb before her shearers who was dumb or speechless. He did not. In fact, Pilate got rather exasperated with him. And he said, why don't you talk? Say something. Answer me. I'm asking you a question. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But I think that's the spirit of Pilate's uh, 
aggravation with the fact that Christ would not defend himself. He would not try. Now, you know with the mind that man had that Jesus could have talked himself out of that one. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, he could have delivered himself because he did when it was not yet time for him to be offered. He could have changed the circumstances considerably, but how would he deal with God? Because you can't escape him. God willed that it would be so, and Jesus submitted to that will. And so instead of being dragged to something he didn't want, he willingly said, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. God, therefore, raised up one whose perfect obedience would be accepted by him and would form the basis upon which others could pass from the condemnation of sin unto death and come under the sentence of life which is now in Christ, who is referred to as the last Adam. And so Paul wrote in Romans 8, beautiful, beautiful chapter, So is the sixth, by the way. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. We mentioned before that the Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 15.39... All flesh is not the same flesh, for there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. Very important that we understand that we are of Adam, not something that might have existed previous to that time. We are not animal flesh because the uh, flesh of the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. We have to be of the same flesh as the mediator. There is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. John 1, 14. And the word of the Logos was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. Very important that we understand that Christ came in the flesh which needed to be purged and cleansed and be made immortal. Jesus was a descendant of Adam and consequently had the same nature as Adam had after he sinned. Jesus is referred to as the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, seed of David, son of David, and son of man. He was a man, as a matter of fact, I counted up one time and Jesus is referred to as the son of David 25 times in the scripture. He was a man approved of God because he was obedient in everything that the Father gave him to do. I came to do my will. Do thy will, O God. He inherited the death which passed upon all men and was able to take it away through his death. Romans 6, 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. He bears our sins on the cross 
that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And that's why I said redemption through Christ is a two-party compact, as it were. Jesus shed his blood, but if we didn't do anything, it still wouldn't have been effective in our behalf. Remember, he could, however, God could raise up of these stones children into Abraham. So God will be glorified. The question before us is, will we be the means of that glorification? Because he's already allowed his son to die to make that possible. We've read Hebrews 2. We've read Romans. Uh, let's see, Hebrews 4. I'm trying now, in the interest of time, to avoid rereading passages. There are just hundreds of passages that have a bearing on this. And I can't possibly for the life of me understand how people can come up with error when there's so much truth surrounding us. Seeing then that we have a great... Uh, verse 14, Hebrews 4, 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, there he is sitting to make... Reconcil uh, to uh, seek forgiveness for us from the Father. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That's what we ought to think about when we say we can't live the truth. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He went through a whole lot in order to make that possible. And we still sit around and say we can't live the truth. What's he for? What's the work of reconciliation for? Wasn't because we could live the truth. What is the purpose of the forgiveness of God? but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The death of Jesus served to free all who come to him of the sentence of death which they inherit at birth and from personal transgressions committed thus opening up a way for the exercise of God's mercy in the forgiveness of sins. 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. He knew no sin, but he was made a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And finally, faith and obedience are necessary in order to receive justification. The salvation that has been made possible by Jesus is not a salvation in which the whole human race will be included. 
It is not a salvation which will be universally enjoyed. It cannot be obtained on terms conceived by man, but only by compliance with God's requirements. Salvation is only to be consummated in the individual experience of those whose faith, notice, whose faith has made them worthy. Naturally, all are related to Adam by descent and through him to death. All are not by nature connected with Christ and therefore are not related to the righteousness and life which are in him. Relationship with Christ is only to be had by compliance with conditions divinely ordained and revealed. Salvation is not instantaneous, but progressive. It advances step by step until it attains perfection in the complete emancipation of the individual from darkness, sin, finally death. The first step toward redemption and salvation is a recognition of our position by nature as a descendant of a death-doomed parent, and in addition, a perception of our own individual iniquity or transgressions. In Romans 13, verses 11 and 12, and that knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. 1 John 1. I'll read as quickly as I can. Verses 8 to 10. If we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Romans 3. Twenty-three. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then the verses we read about the righteousness of God, particularly that 26, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. An intelligent understanding perception of God's grace in Christ will lead to a faithful belief in him. And if this belief is from the heart, it will find expression in righteousness through obedience. And the first act of obedience, of course, we're told is baptism. But in the first place, the truth as it is in Jesus must be understood, which can only be accomplished by a study of God's words. You can look at the trees all day long. You may conclude that there's some kind of a creative force out there. You'll never understand salvation from looking at the rocks and the trees. You may be impressed, but you'll never be instructed until you read God's word. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, verse 9. 
that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And that's why we have examinations before baptisms. They really are not examinations. They are confessions. They're giving the applicant an opportunity to confess his faith in the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? You know, you can't put your hand on the radio or the television or something of the sort and Jesus did it all for you and you're saved. That's not scriptural. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him on whom, of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? That's what the Ethiopian eunuch said to Philip. And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. It's the finest work you can possibly be doing. The finest use of your time is teaching someone the word of God. But they have not all, all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? And then to requote, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. A conviction of the truth contained in the Bible will lead to the act of, acts of obedience, the first of which is baptism. Matthew 28 I'm sorry I'm running over a couple of minutes. I am almost at the very end. 19 and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. That work is a continuing work. A faithful compliance with the requirements of the gospel will result in a person's being accounted righteous in God's sight. Romans 4. What shall we say then that Abraham our father is pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory. That's why we're not justified by works. We would glory in those works. Some people do, even though they're not justified. But not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and was counted unto him for righteousness. His belief was counted for right, as though it had been a complete uh, submission to the will of God and a doing of those things required. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. It is only by God's grace that we can be justified in his sight so we must not allow the thinking of the flesh to cause us to be boastful. 
Luke 17:10. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. So it would have to be grace or unmerited favor since we are, at best, unprofitable servants. Job 22, 3. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous, or is it gain to him that thou makest thy ways perfect? Job 35, 7. If thou be righteous, what givest thou him? Or what receiveth he of thine hand? What can we possibly give to God? He is already righteous. James 4.10 Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Finally, 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you, as he surely will, in due time. Thank you very much. You've been a very...